While they may have regarded the right in one's personal appearance as a trifle, as long as it was honored, they clearly would not have so regarded it if it were infringed. Thurgood Marshall Reports about clothing bands, whose historical purpose has been to reserve luxurious modes of dress for nobility, seem to have reached record numbers. But the contemporary academic focus remains on the psychological barriers to freedom of expression through dress, and not on law as a barrier. Information about how contemporary law regulates dress is most often relegated to a place in clickbait internet articles about bizarre, weird, or random laws around the world. Most people are ignorant of the damage and pain inflicted by sartorial laws. As anthropologist Daniel Miller points out, a depth ontology in Western academia results in a prevalent belief that being, what we truly are, is located deep inside ourselves in direct opposition to the surface. Accordingly, someone who cares about what they wear is shallow, and a philosopher or a saint is deep, and thus superior. If we can't recognize as legitimate, or even imagine the deep and meaningful connections some people have to their clothing, then it becomes difficult to understand that laws banning clothing are capable of doing real harm. When we're ignorant of the harm caused by these laws, we'll be far less likely to question whether or not they're just. Is there a fundamental, though not absolute, human right to wear what we choose? Should not the question of fashion be left to the people themselves? I have selected clothing bands that are either quite common across countries and cultures, or unique to one country or culture in particular, but which I feel capture the spirit, the state of contemporary sartorial prohibitions. I'll show that no one person or group is affected by contemporary clothing bands. The number and the diversity of the bands demonstrates their ability to target different races, religions, genders, sexual orientations, ethnicities, and income brackets. A hardship for everyone using their clothing to express religious devotion, to identify with a system of values or a political party, to claim their cultural heritage, to protest injustice, to feel empowered, to explore their gender identity, to achieve a higher social status, and to feel a general sense of belonging. This woman wears a hijab, a scarf that covers the head and neck, a niqab, a veil for the face which leaves the eyes visible, and the abaya, a long, loose dress. Many bans on face coverings have come into effect in the last decade. In most countries, a very small minority of women wear full face coverings. Sometimes the numbers are even in the single digits. But this does not mean that the severity and effect of these bans on those women should be painted over. Islamic scholars have long debated whether it is obligatory to wear the burqa or niqab. Liberal interpretations suggest a headscarf is unnecessary to properly serve the faith, while strict interpretations, some of which have been adopted by governments, maintain that women must wear a full cloak. France is infamous for initiating the veil bans with the enactment of a 2010 law banning the concealment of one's face in public. Politicians argued they could not allow women to wear the veil because its mere presence was a threat to laicite, or the principle of secularity. Some made the tenuous argument that veils prevent women from participation in society and that the veil threatened French culture. They stoked fear about who and what was hiding underneath the veil and called it a security threat. 
They called any philosophy that dictates women should cover up to mark their gender's difference oppressive. But they seem to have no problem with other markers of gender difference that Western women feel pressured to adopt, like mini skirts, high heels, and lip gloss. They would not agree that visible religious diversity was the outcome of a neutral state. The arguments France made played into the insulting stereotype that a Muslim woman was meek, their beliefs were changeable because they were not her own. Cultural harmony is not achieved by forcing religious women to remove the veil or else remain at home, especially not when the veil bans will result in economic and psychological harm to women who cannot go about their lives while observing their faith as they wish to. But Veilburn sped to Cameroon, Chad, and Congo Brazzaville, and Niger, Bulgaria, Italy, Tajikistan, Austria, Denmark, Luxembourg, and the Netherlands. The most recent veil ban passed in Switzerland. Confusingly, Swiss voters approved an initiative banning covering one's face in public in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, when covering the face with a mask to prevent the spread of disease was mandated. To the woman in the miniskirt. While short, knee and thigh-revealing skirts had existed in many forms across the world, it was the diffusion of the late 1960s miniskirt designed by the London-based Mary Quant that arguably caused the most upset and eventually resulted in legal bans. Across countries, implicit in the debate about the miniskirt's appropriateness is a decency discourse. Miniskirts would not have been banned had they not been associated with loose morals, prostitution, or lewd self-display. To expatriates in Uganda, the idea that the miniskirt could be offensive when traditional styles in nearby Karamoja and Giriyama involved partial nudity was confusing. A writer to a Kenyan daily in the 1960s argued that he looked on women wearing Giriyama clothing with a certain amount of equanimity. His moral indignation was not affected because they were wearing their tribal costume. Their nakedness was not sensual or sexual, while the European miniskirt, he believed, was a purposeful symbol of seduction and invitation. No doubt miniskirt designers everywhere would take issue with that claim, as would women and feminists everywhere. To suggest every woman donning a miniskirt is inviting sexual advances is patently false and incredibly dangerous, but that didn't stop people from claiming that rising incidents in sexual assault and STI transmission was a direct result of the choice to wear a miniskirt. Furthermore, the popularization of the miniskirt was seen as an act of enforced deculturalization, or an erasing of African culture. In Swaziland, colonial-era laws are used to discourage miniskirts and revealing clothing. The Crimes Act of 1899 threatens a fine of 600 rand or imprisonment for two years as a punishment for enticing or soliciting immoral acts by words, signs, cards, or in any other way whatsoever and punishes the person who knowingly aids or facilitates the commission of immoral acts, or is a person of notoriously immoral character, who exhibits himself in indecent dress or manner at any door or window or within the view of any public street or place. The city of Manzini has seen women march in miniskirts and skinny jeans to make their voices heard. The next mannequin this one a male form, wears a pink dress and flower crown in defiance of bands on gender-bending dress. 
Here, the term gender-bending dress is used to describe an individual's wearing clothing and adornments that do not belong to the category of clothing typically associated with that individual's biological sex assigned at birth. It's difficult to classify different garments, accessories, and cosmetics as male or female, and this isn't just because of cultural differences. Is long hair a woman's style? Surely it isn't always a gender-bending practice for a man to wear makeup, jewelry, or paint his fingernails. In the United States, laws criminalizing gender-bending dress spread in the mid-19th century. States used laws originally passed to prevent tax evasion, to police drag and other forms of gender-bending dress, which they dubbed disguises. It became a crime to have one's face painted, discolored, covered, or concealed, or otherwise disguised while on a road or public highway. Charleston, El Paso, and New Orleans have retained gender-bending dress bans in the form of masquerade laws. The use of masquerade laws to regulate gender-bending dress, with exceptions for theatrical performances, reveals something important about how lawmakers and law enforcement see gender-bending dress. They seem to believe it's a disguise which conceals the true identity of the wearer. They affirm the depth ontology, that who we really are is concealed by what we wear. Gender-bending dress is also a punishable offense in the United Arab Emirates. Article 359 of the Penal Code prohibits men from entering under disguise to any place allocated for women only or to which the entry of men is forbidden, and a violation carries a penalty of incarceration for more than one year and a fine, or one of the two punishments. Abu Dhabi police have been known to charge detainees with violations of both Article 359 of the Federal Code and Article 58 of the Local Penal Code, which punishes violations of public morals. Brunei, Oman, and part of Malaysia have similar bans. Let's move on to the fox fur coat and mink stole. I treat fur bans as clothing bans because even though they do not ban wearing or carrying fur, Bans on selling it will, in theory, drive fur out of the marketplace, eliminating it as a wardrobe option. California was the first state in the U.S. to ban the sale of new animal fur products with Assembly Bill 44, which was enacted in October 2019 and will come into effect next year. The bill covers any article of clothing or any fashion accessory, including, but not limited to, Handbags, shoes, slippers, hats, earmuffs, scarves, shawls, gloves, jewelry, keychains, toys or trinkets, and home accessories and decor that is made in whole or in part of fur. It includes exemptions for secondhand fur and leather sales, as well as fur sales for religious or Native American purposes. The penalty for violating the California fur ban is a $500 fine for the first violation and $1,000 for repeated violations with each product representing a separate one. There are many reasons for implementing fur bans, primarily eliminating animal cruelty, reducing waste, and improving public health conditions. Minks, foxes, sables, rabbits, and other animals, prized for their soft pelts, are raised in adjacent wire mesh cages and cared for via automated systems. Electrocution and euthanasia are used to kill them. When it comes to environmental concerns, no fur, fake or real, is quick to biodegrade, and the tanning process natural furs go through is toxic. Finally, fur farms increase the risks of spillover and spillback, 
or the cross-species transmission of disease, which results in novel disease variants, such as COVID-19 variants. Let's move on to the plastic-wrapped bale of used clothing. The glut of used clothing arriving in foreign ports has become a major problem. Globally, 94 million tons of textile wastes are created every year, and only 12% of that is recycled. Less than 20% of clothing donated to charity is actually repurposed through that charity. Top exporters of used clothing believe they are alleviating poverty, creating jobs, and reducing textile waste by donating to countries that will sort and sell and use used garments. In reality, they're shifting environmental impacts onto other countries by filling space in their landfills with all of the clothing that isn't fit to wear. They sabotage economic stability in domestic textile and clothing industries, since a lot of used clothing means no homespun goods are needed. Colombia, Paraguay, Bolivia, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia, Peru, Mexico, Nigeria, Haiti, and Indonesia ban used clothing. This next piece, the purse, is a cheap copy of the Birkin bag made by the brand Hermes. France shines as a place to design, shop for, and show off luxury fashion, and France protects its strong fashion industry with the strongest of intellectual property laws. Under French law, not only is it illegal to make and sell fakes, but it is also illegal to purchase and carry them as an individual. Getting caught carrying a fake could result in imprisonment of up to three years, and prosecutors can levy fines of up to 300,000 euros. France is not the only country with controls on counterfeits. Many countries let IP rights holders recover damages for IP infringement via civil lawsuit. But France is the only country in which the individual purchase and display of counterfeits can result in criminal charges. But does the strength of the anti-counterfeiting law tell us more about France's concern for the tourist, or more about its concern for the value of a luxury fashion industry that's been thriving for centuries? Does buying a fake really mean one deserves a real criminal record? Our American sensibilities, shaped by life under a legal system that has no intellectual property laws specifically meant for fashion, leave us more open to the idea of fake designer fashion as a way to express a reverence for a designer or a lifestyle that isn't currently socially or financially achievable for us. This $55 pleather bag with a polyester lining in front of you is fake, and the Birkin bag in the window of the Hermes Madison Avenue flagship store is real. But if a bag is made by employees of the brand with the same material and techniques the brand uses, what exactly makes it fake besides the fact that it's missing the brand's endorsement? And does making and selling bags without the brand's endorsement really merit years of jail time? This man wears a hoodie and sagging pants. The origins of the sartorial practice of sagging, or wearing the waistband of one's pants below the waistband of one's underwear with the underwear showing, are debated. What is generally undisputed is that sagging was popularized in the early 1990s by rap and hip-hop stars, and that the style is a product of black culture and worn most frequently by black young men. 
In the early 2000s, a wave of laws banning the style swept across the United States. What were the purported reasons for banning sagging? Politicians said it corrupts public morals and that the pants are used to hide drugs and weapons. It is associated with criminals and gang activity, suspicious and thug-like. Given these dog whistle terms, it's not surprising that out of the 728 people cited under a Shreveport, Louisiana law banning sagging, 98% were black. Every single juvenile cited was black. Violations of the law were punished with $100 fines and community service. Importantly, a failure to appear in court after receiving a citation triggered a warrant for arrest. In 2019, Trevion Brooks, an officer with the Shreveport Police Department, approached a man named Anthony Childs to cite him for violating the sagging pants ordinance when Childs fled. The ensuing altercation ended in Childs' death, and the law was repealed less than two weeks later. But other laws banning sagging remain on the books in Linwood, Illinois, Union Point, Georgia, and Abbeville, Louisiana, with fines ranging from $25 for first offenses to $300 for multiple offenses, and 40 or more hours of community service for the wearer and the wearer's legal guardian. Now let's discuss the hoodie. The history of bans on hoodies is parallel to that of bans on sagging, but with an important difference. Laws that effectively ban hoodies, which are enforced to the detriment of the black community in the United States, were initially put into force to protect from the racist extremist Ku Klux Klan and its intimidation tactics. It's a cruel irony that the laws and logic originally used to protect communities from racists would later be used to justify violence. When George Zimmerman shot Trayvon Martin, the jury would hear just how threatening the young Martin was wearing his hoodie. As Richard Ford Thompson, the author of Dress Codes, puts it, Following Martin's death, the public image of the hoodie made it into a statement of racial prides and defiance, solidarity with community, an emblem of belonging, and all of that reinforced the negative associations for those who were inclined to be afraid of assertive black people. Putting on a hoodie as a black man involved a decision to make a statement that could make some people mistrust you, get you hassled by police, even killed. Despite this, both functional and explicit hoodie bans are still law in Minnesota and North Carolina. This woman wears a conflicting mix of political gear. Her I Voted badge signals she has just come from a polling place. Georgia, California, Texas, and Minnesota ban campaign gear at the polls on election day. These laws prohibit the visible display of information that advocates for or against any candidate or measure, including the display of a candidate's name, likeness, or logo, the display of a ballot measure's number, title, subject, or logo, and buttons, hats, or shirts containing such information. The purpose behind such laws is, in theory, to shelter the voter from intimidation and advocacy while they cast their ballot. Our last object is a t-shirt bearing the Bursa 4 logo, which is the emblem of a coalition of Malaysian citizens fighting for what they call the Clean Four. Clean elections, clean government, 
the right to dissent, and a better economy. Bursa is an anti-corruption movement which began with a series of online exposés that led to suspicions that former Prime Minister Najib Tun Razak and associates had stolen billions of dollars from Malaysia Development Berhad, or 1MBD, a government-run strategic development company. In 2015, after 100,000 people took to the streets protesting and tens of thousands had purchased the shirt, the security minister of Malaysia abruptly declared a ban on printed bursa materials with the authority granted to him under the Printing Presses and Publication Act. Section 7 of the Act stipulated that the printing, importation, production, reproduction, publishing, sale, issue, circulation, distribution, or possession of the material which is likely to be prejudicial to the public order, likely to be prejudicial to security, likely to be contrary to any law, and likely to be prejudicial to national interest are absolutely prohibited throughout Malaysia. The yellow t-shirt was suddenly a national security threat. The ban prompted a legal dispute over whether t-shirts fell under the definition of printed materials. The Shah Alam High Court sided with the Malaysian government and the ban remained in place with wearers exposed to criminal liability. Twelve people were arrested for wearing the shirt. Clothing is a harbinger of social change and progress. By just reviewing a handful of bans, we have seen governments try to use clothing to control status and the flow of wealth, to force assimilation into dominant cultural and religious frameworks, to ban dissent, and to preserve their own ideas of decency and upright morals. These garments have prejudicial powers and powers of interference, but they also aren't as dangerous as the people who want to ban them say they are. A proponent of the right to wear surely believes that clothing has enough power to make a material change, while it is not so provocative as to merit constant and strict regulation. If clothing was just a matter of personal grooming, if we only chose it to shelter our bodies with no intention or design, the right to one's personal appearance wouldn't be worth protecting, because clothing choice would be arbitrary, meaningless, and indifferent. Maybe for some people it is, but for many it has religious, persuasive, cultural, and political power, making it a tool for constructing identity and an agent for change. Even if we accept that bans on clothing are neutral at first glance, we have to pay closer attention to how they are enforced and who is paying the price for them. Clothing is so intertwined with our race, or religion, or ethnicity, or gender, or politics, that targeting clothing is an easy way to target a particular group. No right is absolute, and neither is the right to wear. Our interest in being free to dress as we choose must be weighed against concerns about security, cultural erasure, modesty, ethics, the economy, and the environment. Sometimes those concerns will, and should, take precedence over our desire to determine our personal appearance. No doubt we will continue to disagree on the question of whether clothing bans are serving just causes. Nevertheless, each ban deserves a thorough examination in order to make that determination, and none should be relegated to the rank of triviality or consigned to history. Thank you very much for visiting this exhibit.